You're listening to Wordsmith, the poetry podcast presented by Miriam Hechtman and Kelly Van Nelson. On this program, we invite poets from all over the world to join us for a one-on-one conversation about their poetry, their craft, and what poetry means to them. From how poetry played out in childhood to its current practice, it's all about the poet and the poem and what's really happening behind the words. Here in Australia, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we produce this program, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Today on the show, Joshua Bennett joins Miriam. Dr. Joshua Bennett is the Mellon Assistant Professor of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. He is the author of three books of poetry and criticism, The Sobbing School, published by Penguin, Being Property Once Myself, published by Harvard University Press, and his most recent book of poetry, Ode, also published by Penguin. His writing has been published in the New York Times, the Paris Review, and elsewhere. His first work of narrative non-fiction, Spoken Word, A Cultural History, is forthcoming from Knopf. Please welcome Joshua Bennett. Ode to Long Johns. I remember thinking, these are like skin for my skin, and a truer thing to call black to boot as my first pair were blacker even than my nascent curls, which turned brown whenever they would wrestle the light. My father called you thermals, which always brought to mind radioactive weapons of one kind or another, two nuclear physicists using casual shorthand over coffee. For 10 years, under thrift store denim and corduroys rubbed raw by Miss Blint's blue carpet, I rocked your soft scales with minimal fuss, only twice or so grumbling to pop about how you make me appear, if not heavier per se, than just, well, stuck in all of my clothes, that this is on the whole untenable for a boy my age. No small tragedy, given these were formative years, you see, critical even, as it pertained to the glowing affirmative sense of my body I would need for success in the general public situation. Pop's concern remained with the cold. And I remained a boy cocooned, fed up, hungry for better methods of breaking winter's callous rule. Anything other than having to leave the oven door open, setting my mother's best four black pots to boil at once. Our entire family gathered as if shrapnel in the living room. So close our bodies grew almost indeterminate there, huddled like stars under blankets to thaw. So thank you so much. I think, I think it came to my attention with the dad poem, actually, because I follow uh-huh. poets.org. I get all their emails once a day. I get a poem to read late at night. And that poem came through and I was like, wow. <laughs> so mm-hmm. then I like looked for you. Thank you for reading. So where I've sort of been starting with poets is their childhood. I love um, Krista Tippett on On Being. And I love how she starts with where your spirituality or religion is in your childhood. 
So, but I'm yeah. going to turn that and ask where poetry was in your childhood and if, if it was there or not and how it appeared and how you, how it played in your life in your childhood. Yeah. I feel bad for anyone who's uh, read or listened to anything I said before, because I always give some version of this answer because it's the truth, but poetry was everywhere. You know, um, my older sister had my Angelou's phenomenal woman taped to the front of her bedroom door. So every time I left the house, I sort of walked past that poem. Uh, my father was a deacon. My mother ran vacation Bible school in our church. Uh, my sister was on the lead altos, you know, the alto section. And so I was always in church. I was always around um, the poetry of American preaching. It was a very intimate part of my childhood. And I mean, this is an argument that various sort of black literary critics make is that actually sort of the first black poets in the United States are black preachers. And so I always had this sense that um, poetry was something you shared with people in a public venue. That was one thing, but always that there was also this kind of mystical element to poetry and to language that actually saying a certain sequence of words a certain way as part of a ceremony or ritual could change the material world around you. So the, the stakes were cosmic, I guess, of the poetry I grew up with. And I tried to maintain that sensibility about it as I got older. The, uh, whatever I put on the page, I had to believe that I had the capacity to change my life and change the lives of the people that I loved, you know? So poetry was all around me and I always wrote it. You know, I, I wrote poems when I was four years old. My mom still has, you know, a shoebox full of those written poems, but I also would improvise these sermons, you know, for up to an hour at a time uh, on Sunday afternoons and my whole family would gather around to watch. Um, so they, they always made space, I guess, for my voice in one way or another. And did you understand it was poetry? No, I didn't have that word for it, I don't think. I think I called them stories, if I remember correctly. I feel like my sense of it was always that I was creating a kind of narrative, um, and that it was fine that most of them were fictional, at least the narratives I put on the page were about uh, pirates and magical rings uh, that could bend the elements. I mean, a lot of it, I think, was just riffs on Captain Planet and Power Rangers and some of the television I was watching at the time, but... I mean, I don't know. I wrote, it seemed like almost, I'm trying to think. I mean, now I write pretty much every day. And I do think even as a young person, it was part of a daily routine for me to write something. So it's, it's been an intimate part of my daily practice for a while. And do you, were you instructed to do that? Or is that something that was just your thing? Hmm. Yeah, reading was a punishment, but not writing, <laughs> uh, which is fascinating. And I mean, when I say punishment, it was more sort of get out of the way. Like we have stuff we need to do in the house. So go read, go sit down and read the dictionary or read one of your many books and sort of get out of our hair. Uh, read the where, dictionary? Yeah. Oh, no. I had a, the big red dictionary in my parents' house. I read all the time. My mother, I don't think once my entire childhood told me what a word meant. Anytime I asked her what a word was or to explain a concept, she would tell me to go look it up and so as part of how my scholarly practice began, I guess. I think um, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's yeah. pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's good thing, I think. Yeah, I mean, I've tried, I'm getting my daughters into the dictionary now. I loved it as a kid as well, because it was yeah. such a, it's such a power to be able to understand something to its greatest depths, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I grew up in the encyclopedia childhood, so we had the world mm, books. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I had the Britannica, yeah, Encyclopedia yeah. Britannica, and it had just gone online. So when I got into middle school, we could look it up, yeah, the whole thing. And do you think even at a young age, there was an intention behind what you were writing, or it was more just free, kind of? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do think this kind of through line has remained, which is that I'm, I really even then was just trying to get out what was in my head. I had all these strange stories that would just unspool over the course of a day. Like these were kind of active characters that I lived with for many years. And so my sense was really that I was just a scribe for whatever was happening in my interior world. And I think now, of course, there's more of a kind of theoretical and historical bent to my scholarship. And I think the poetry is more confessional. But there's still, I think, that sense that um, I'm trying to get the music out, you know? That there's, it's chaos in here. Uh, and poetry is part of how I render it and try to create these bridges uh, between myself and friends and strangers who I imagine are often having a kind of chaotic experience as well with their own cognition and are looking for room to share that experience. At least that's what I think of as, as the, the beauty of sharing poetry. Mm. And I am... Um... I'm curious because I know you've got also a background more in spoken word. When you're writing, do you feel like you're writing for it to be spoken? Yes, always. I can't get outside of it. I've, I've, I've tried. Uh, <laughs> I think if, if I put a poem on the page in particular, it has to sound beautiful when I give it to the air. Or I feel like I've, I've left something on the table, as it were. You know, so that's part is key. Oh, go ahead, please. So that's part of your practice then. I mean, it's part of your craft is knowing how it sounds. Yeah, I have to know how it sounds. To me, if it if it doesn't sound good, it, the the poem's not good. You should just go work on it some more. That that's it's just always been my sensibility about the work, in part because of my spoken word background, I think, and starting in poetry slam. I mean, there's something quite democratic about the fact that what you wrote for that occasion uh, has to reach an audience of strangers. It has to reach many people who explicitly almost don't read poetry. Like part of the reason they're there is because maybe page poetry doesn't quite do it for them, right? And so when I started to write books, my sense was that that was still maybe my primary audience in a way. Um, people who might hear me and say, you know, I don't like poetry that I was taught in school, but whatever it was that you did, you know, if that's poetry, maybe there might be something to it. Right. Um, and I think throughout my entire career that that's been my focus is the people who don't think poetry is for them and who really have been historically, you know, barred, I think, even from publishing their work or understanding themselves as part of an American canon of poetry. And you're working on a book now. Are you, are you still working on this book about spoken word or? Yeah, spoken word, a cultural history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a draft of it done, but, you know, these things need to be revised. So hopefully that'll be out uh, next year. From okay. And who are the, the people that have inspired you in poetry and whether they're poets or not, you know? So many people. Lucille Clifton, probably first and foremost. Uh, June Jordan, Amiri Baraka, William Matthews. Who else am I reading all the time? Ross Gay, for sure. Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, Tara Betts, who I'm co-editing a special issue of Poetry Magazine with her now called The Practice of Freedom, um, where almost the entire issue is incarcerated poets. Um, Etheridge Knight, someone that inspires me, Araceli Skirmay. There's so many people. Yeah, they're, they're all around. Camille Dungy, you know, she uh, published this anthology called Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Poetry in 2009. That literally changed my life. Um, so shout out to Camille. Gregory Pardlo, Ivy Francis. My dad, my mom, my older sister, my little brother. Yeah, it's inspiration everywhere. My wife, Pam, you know. Your baby? Yeah, a little, little one on the way. 
you know, he's inspired a bunch of poems. My goodness. The, the whole third section of this new book that I just finished over the summer uh, that it looks like will be coming out with Penguin. Um, yeah, it's just all about him, you know? And this so that's a new book of poetry? Yeah, yeah. That's a new book of poetry. Okay. Okay. And so what... Um... I mean, I can tell you what I think your themes are from what I've read. Well, what do you please, think? Please. No, 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 no. Tell me what you think. What do you, like, what, what, I, what um, are you trying to do with your poetry? Like, what, is, what are you focusing on? What's your, I feel like I'm reading an unpacking of a mm-hmm. history that I might not know a lot about. And I can yeah. say that as a white Australian woman. Yeah. Um, and I also feel like it's incredibly personal. So I feel like... You're telling me stories um, very much about yourself, but then mm-hmm. also you're also telling me about a culture that I'm learning about. So, and a history of America. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Cause I think that's a big part of the project, right? Is that um, part of the claim I'm trying to make is that, you know, my family, our influences, our art, our music, our poetry, um, is part of this larger tapestry and is maybe con- even constitutive of it right, is part of what I'm trying to say. Um, And that these spaces, these people, uh, and often in a book like Ode, you know, these individual objects, they deserve to be celebrated. Um, I I think the stories are often quite personal. The poems are quite personal. Even the literary criticism is is personal to an extent, you know, like my first book of of essays is dedicated to, you know, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, and my grandfather. But I'm trying to tell a universal story, I think, of love and loss. You know, um, part of why I talk about school so much and childhood so much is that, you know, childhood is a universal position for those of us that are alive. You know, like every one of us was once a child and was in that position of an incredible uh, vulnerability to, uh, to danger, um, but also a site of really kind of unchecked exploration and imagination. So I, th- I think part of what I'm trying to unpack in, in my book is how do we really sit with the humanity of people that have been... Um, historically denied sort of avenues to express their humanity, right? People that were legally barred from being able to read and write in the U.S. context. Um, people that had to, you know, sort of live um, ostensibly really at the sort of underside of the modern world. What ways have those people cultivated of talking about joy and pain and love and human possibility? You know, so that, that's what I'm after in the poems, for sure. And let's talk about the sobbing school and maybe we can do it. Are you going to do a couple poems from there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, from the Simon School? Yeah. Let me see. Do I, I have a copy on the bookshelf? I might have to walk you over to my bookshelf. That's but, fine. Okay. <laughs> Did you want to do one from there? Uh, I can. Yeah, hold on. Let me, because uh, I have Ode here. But let me go. Yeah, oh, yeah. The and I'm, I love the title, so I do want to talk a little. I, both titles, actually, are just yeah. good, good, good words in there. <laughs> so <laughs> I do you. want to talk about those titles. There we go. And how well, important a title is in a book of poetry. Oh, of course, of course. And both of them in their own way, I think, are nods to, you know, writers that, oops, there we go, to writers who have had a tremendous impact on me, you know, in their own way. So, I mean, The Sobbing School, the title is based uh, on a line from a Zora Neale Hurston essay called How It Feels to Be Colored Me. Um, this new book, Ode, um, in its own way, I think, is a nod to uh, June Jordan, who some of the last poems she wrote before her death were called odes, but they were more sort of like battle poems. She has these like two battle raps uh, with Eminem called Ode to Eminem. 
you know, yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff. I'd already, you know, finished the book by the time I discovered some of these poems, but it was still useful uh, to see that even when I wasn't trying, you know, the tradition was sort of coming through me in a way. But was she O-D-E or O-W-E? No, I mean, well, she wrote O-D-E odes, but she also had, I think, uh, two O-W-E-D odes. Right, okay. So, yeah, they're at the end of her collected work, uh, Directed by Desire, so. Okay. Those check that out. But, um, yeah, and then Being Property Once Myself, my book of essays, that's a line from a Lucille Clifton poem, you know, so. Mm. Okay. So with The Sobbing School, what was your intention for this book? Yeah, I mean, the sobbing school was largely about grief, you know. Um, and I kind of say this in a line of the poem, but, you know, who can be alive today and not study grief? I mean, it really is a grief study. I'm trying to think about what it meant in the moment of uh, 2015 where I was writing it, you know, and it won the National Poetry Series. Um, you know, Mike Brown had just been killed uh, the year before. Um, and I just remember as a graduate student at Princeton in the English department and just seeing these photographs, you know, of Mike Brown's body in the street, thinking about the, the uprising in Ferguson, thinking about Eric Garner and this sort of just seemingly ever increasing litany of black people being slain by police officers, by security guards, by vigilantes, and feeling like I needed to get that on the page. Um, that, that feeling that these people are my family, though I'd never met them, right? And the idea that uh, whatever blackness was, it had something to do with this kinship, this intimacy across great distance and time. Uh, so the sobbing school for me was an opportunity to really sit uh, in that space of mourning and reflect um, up upon the forms of persistence that make life livable under those conditions. Let's hear one. Sure. This is for uh, this is from my boy Danny, uh, who I was speaking to on Facebook Messenger the other day. We grew up uh, together. And uh, this is still life with first best friend after Jericho Brown. Danny in the scrum and his hands are metal arcs, their fulvous ascent. Danny after the fact. Danny listening to you weep, quiet as this umpteenth L must be kept. Danny does what all best friends who growth spurt first must do. Danny defends. Danny deflects all classroom heat. The jokes that land like lash and linger. Danny suspended like twice. Danny can't safeguard in absentia. Danny talks about his daddy, same way you do yours when yours goes phantom. Danny ethics. Danny don't go missing. Danny forged in flame. Danny igneous. Danny obsidian. Danny covert nerd on black ops mission. So Danny magic cards. Danny Charizard. Danny still blacker than you, depending on that day's definition. Danny Bigger Thomas and Big Bird and Big Pun all in the same bookcase. Danny all-inclusive literary tradition. Danny claims you're black. It's very bricks as kin. You tell him duty is a dead idea. Danny won't listen. Danny principles. Early 20s, you talk tough and Danny gets defensive like you do school, Jay. Someone starts problems out here, you call me. That's my business. Danny stabbed twice and shot once and still smooth as a piston. Danny invincible. Danny illegible. Danny family. Nobody else checks in on dad when you forget to miss him.
Thank you. No worries. Can you tell us a bit about that poem? Sure. Uh, that poem is about childhood and violence and I guess the way I grew up in the forms of sociality, right, that black and brown boys developed to survive right? and also to come to know each other that part of the, I guess part of the language we had around intimacy was really forged through these dangerous encounters, you know, and, and one of the, the, the first ways we learned to say I love you was that we would defend each other from harm, you know, harm from strangers, harm from classmates. Um, and even sometimes I think from the sort of psychological harm of our homes or our sort of lived environments. And so uh, this poem is about, you know, my first best friend, my, my boy Danny, um, who I'm still close with, you know, he's, he's reached out to me throughout the entire pregnancy. And, and you know, we've kept close uh, online. He's a barber, lives in New York, um, pretty close still to the, the old neighborhood. And, um, you know, when you're little, you don't have money. So you exchange talents, you know, in the economy of childhood. So I was really good at telling time and, you know, I would work with Danny on that and he would help keep me from getting beat up. And, you know, we were, we were thick as thieves, you know. How did he mind. feel? How did he feel about that poem? He really likes the poem. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about <laughs> it when the book first came out. So I, th I think Danny always appreciates that. I don't know, part of my work is, is so that my friends and family and the people I grew up admiring can be literature, you know? And I think he understands that, that that's, you know, a part of my larger intellectual project is that like our hometown, the things we grew up eating and listening to and watching and, and loving, I'm gonna make sure that that gets out and that becomes Americana, you know, I'm gonna honor it. So do you consider yourself part historian? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, as someone who, uh, you know, my son's godfather is a historian, and I know like dis discipline is very important, <laughs> you know, uh, in, in my field. So I, I wouldn't say I'm a historian so much as someone for whom uh, history is very important and primary. I think historical sources mean a great deal. I would say I'm someone who tries to use poetry to attend to gaps in the historical record, because I think sometimes poetry goes where history cannot, um, and that there are gaps in our ability even to know parts of the past. Um, that poetic exploration is especially suited, I think, uh, to help us with it. So that's what I would say. I would say I definitely admire historians. You know, some of my favorite writers are historians, folks like Robin Kelly, you know, and Gerald Horn. But um, yeah, I think the poet and the historian are our colleagues in a certain way. And yeah, like the artist as well. Uh, yeah, well, I think of poetry, you know, a, a poet's as artist. Yeah. yeah, visual artists do all kinds of other magic that I can't fathom, though. You know, I can draw a little bit, but <laughs> I can't fathom, you know, like, landscape painting type stuff. And can we, can we talk a little bit about your craft? Because, I mean, you've been at Princeton. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that trajectory of what you've studied and how that has... Um, inspired your poetry or changed your poetry or that's a great question because i'm a self-taught poet yes but i'm formally trained in all these other ways right as a literary critic um in a very sort of traditional english program right so i mean i got an academic scholarship when i was 14 years old to go to an elite private school in new york called rye country day school um and i think that was actually where i discovered spoken word which is interesting um that you know, my art teacher, who was, I think at the time, maybe the only Black teacher in my whole school, um, Miss Powell, she took us to go see Deaf Poetry Jam on Broadway. 
uh, my sophomore year, which is pretty incredible. One of the stars of that show, Black Ice, you know, is still one of my good friends. She invited him to come perform at our high school, right, um, the next year. And so then my friend Rodney and I, we founded the, uh, the Poetry Slam Club at my high school. And then I eventually got to participate in a Poetry Slam for the first time um, my senior year. So I really developed sort of um, my voice as a spoken word poet and as a performer while being at this elite private school, you know, and reading all these sort of novels and, and different poems on the page for the first time. And I chose the college I went to in part because it had a really vibrant spoken word scene. So um, for those of you who remember MySpace, I would go on MySpace after school and I would listen to spoken word on there. And I discovered these amazing poets, two of them, Caroline Rothstein and Carlos Andres Gomez. And I found that they were both part of something called the Exolano Project, which was a spoken word group Penn. Uh, then I, I got into Penn early decision. I went there. I uh, double majored in Africana studies and English with minors in history and Spanish. Uh, joined the Exolano project uh, my freshman year and started touring uh, once I was 20 years old. You know, I got the chance to uh, perform at the White House at the end of my junior year. I was invited by Stan Lathan, who produced Deaf Poetry Jam, right? So it was also this fascinating kind of circuit, right? Um, and uh, I'd just been in the HBO documentary, which is how Stan, you know, sort of discovered my work. And he's really been an incredible mentor in the time since. And then after Penn, I won something called the Marshall Scholarship, uh, which allows 32 Americans to go study in the UK. So a number of us go to Oxford and Cambridge and Liverpool and Warwick. So I did my uh, master's in theater and performance studies at the University of Warwick. And then I started my PhD in English at Princeton after that. And and I did a postdoc at Harvard, and now I'm a professor of English and creative writing at Dartmouth. So I've been through sort of a number of these um, different elite institutions, but really for the past 12 years, I've also been on tour the whole time. The whole time I was a student, uh, I was also teaching poetry to elementary school students and middle school students and college kids um, and traveling the world, really. I mean, I was performing in South Africa and the UK, in addition to, you know, across the entirety of the United States. So... It's, it's been quite the journey that as I was sort of reading, you know, post-structuralist theory, I was also writing these really elaborate spoken word poems about my family and about uh, social justice issues and trying to really do that delicate dance. So what do you think? I mean, when I was listening to you in those teenage years, you're at this elite private school mm-hmm. and you've just discovered spoken word and poetry and, and yeah. what grabbed you? What was it? Uh, I think the same thing that grabs millions of people online, you know, every day is just the rawness of it and the power, you know, there, there was something I think to the idea that I was being trained at that moment in my life to be completely buttoned up, to be proper, you know, um, to be elite. And then I was seeing these other 15 and 16 year olds who were getting up there and just telling their truth. They were using curse words, right? They were speaking explicitly about sex and desire and politics and, and love and tragedy. And it just felt like the truest thing I'd ever seen, right? It also felt like a kind of logical extension of the preaching I grew up with, right? To see that married to these beautiful poems uh, that were original and were written and that you could carry with you, you know, after you heard them, you could feel them in your body and really hold it close. I knew I wanted that, whatever that, that was, whatever that power was that you have when you stood in front of a microphone and told your story. I knew that I had to pursue it with everything I had. So after seeing that sort of uh, first live uh, full-length spoken word show my senior year, I went home and I, I wrote my first full-length performance piece and, you know, tried out for the local Poetry Slam team and I made it and went to the international competition and did the whole thing. So, yeah, I've been a student of that craft for as long as anything else. 
And how do you know, just getting a little bit into your craft, how do you know when you got something? Mm, how do I know when it's good? Yeah. <laughs> a good question. I, don't know, I think I have an ear for when a poem's working or not. Something that's been interesting about this part of my career, though, is for the first time, I'm willing to resuscitate old poems that I thought weren't very good. Um, I'm just learning that maybe I had to do more growing up to write the kind of poem you know, that the language demanded. So that's been really useful. But I think I, I'm a pretty good judge at this point of, of when the poems are, I hope I am anyway, of when the poems really just don't swing at all. Um, and, and those I don't send out for publication anywhere, I just leave. Um, they don't end up in any books. Um, but now I think, especially with this new book, I've gone back to stuff I wrote, you know, five, six, seven years ago. And even if it's just a line, I'll say, oh, okay, well, this line actually maps really well on to these other sounds I've had in my head lately. And maybe we can just explore that you know, and have some time to sit still with it. And do you think like, I mean, I always think there's like a few golden lines in a poem, you know, that they're the, do you, do you have that feeling too? Yeah, of course. I mean, even when I teach in class, I sort of ask my students, where's the heat in this poem, right? Where are the Okay. Is that what you call it? Yeah. Yeah. We, we just talk about it. I got that from Terrence Hayes. I took a workshop with him and he asked us, where's the heat? And I thought, oh, it's oh, yeah. good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Where's the heat is great. Cause <laughs> everyone, awesome. That's what draws you to art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, can, yeah. you can do that with anything. If you have no formal training in art history, you go to a painting and say, where's the heat in this oh, painting? Oh, I'm so going to use that. It draws you close. Yeah. No, it's I'm good. I'm going to use that with my kids as well. You know, my girls, I'm going to, where's the heat? Where's the heat? Oh, that's no, good. Talking. Thank you. <laughs> no, no worries. No worries. No worries. So when you're, how, what's your writing like? What's your, are you like a early morning, late night, notebook, mm -hmm. phone? What, what, what's your thing? What are you doing? How are you doing? Good question. I mean, it's, it's interesting. So in this, so in this trimester, it's, it's fascinating because now I wake up in the middle of the night every single day. Uh, before it was occasional. Now, every single day I wake up in the middle of the night and then I wake up again around seven. And that's been remarkable for my productivity because I think now if, if I write between seven and 10, I'm just in a, in a very focused, you know, sort of space. Whereas before I would make writing something that I just did all day consistently. Now I think having that specific block to really sort of drill down and get any lingering essays finished, any poems I want to work on, any emails, any corrections to sort of older pieces of writing, um, that's been really useful. But for most of my life, I wrote in bed, uh, often at night, and I think that just changed, honestly, at the beginning of the, the pandemic for me, um, in part because I was on leave, but also I just couldn't leave the house anymore. So whereas before, I think it was part of my writing process to go outside, uh, have experiences sort of outside in the world and come back home and then sit at the desk or sit in bed and sort of reflect and work. For the first time, I was in the house all day. Uh, and part of what that meant was I had to search in, in very different spaces for the, for the kind of inspiration that would bring me to the page. And uh, in part, it meant going to other genres, you know, so a, a fair portion of this new book is actually a novella. Um, so it's my first time writing fiction. And it was completely produced uh, during the pandemic. You know, I created this whole sort of other world in my head and made myself go there every day to sort of unfurl this story, which is ongoing. I think it's going to be a narrative that I continue to pick up in future collections. But that's what the process is like now, you know, get up yeah. around seven, see if I have any poems or anything like that I need to get down. And uh, it's been an incredible experience. And do you handwrite? What do you do? Mm, that's a good question. Usually on the laptop, sometimes though, I mean, I write the lectures on my phone. 
which has been interesting. I just got an iPad, which has been good for that too. Um, but yeah, lectures, mostly phone and iPad. Poems always on the laptop. I keep the phone notes app with me at all times, just because that helps if you're like on a bus or walking around and you want to capture an image or make a list of poems you need to write, which I've been doing. That's been really useful. What do you, what do you um, mean a list of poems? What do you mean? Oh, they're just poems I have to write. Like you know, what? What do you mean? Like a list of poems? It's not <laughs> I'm very curious. Like, uh, I mean, I've never done this before. I mean, it's true. So there, there's a, the word enormity just has to, it's the start of a poem. I don't know what poem okay. it is, but for the past four days, that's how the poem starts. So yeah, that just has to get written. So that's on my list, you know? Okay. And then there are other poems that I need to write maybe about Moses. I mean, there's just a lot of poems. So something like that, <laughs> yeah. you get a word or a something, and then you know there's a whole poem for that. And yes. you know it. No, you know I know it. that's a poem. I can feel it. I know that's a poem. Um, What's the feeling? Yeah. God, I'm going to really the, unpack this with you. What is that feeling? Like, what is it? Like, oh, what's I've got feeling? something to say. I. Mm, it's not that. It's not that I have something to say so much as um, this, this is a, such a good question. I think the feeling is actually this is in you or this is out there and you have to point it out. It's one of those two. It's like there's a story you have that might need to be communicated or this is some kind of truth that's out there um, that's been chasing you. I mean, this is such strange language, but it, it is how it feels. Like it's, this has been orbiting you for a long time um, and you have to communicate it um, for yourself and maybe for other people too, you know? And I think that's church stuff as well. Like I think that was just part of the lexicon of, of my youth was that um, sometimes a word is how we would describe it like a word is not always for you sometimes a word is for someone else my older sister says this all the time um that she'll feel like she has revelations spiritual revelations that are not for her at all they're just descriptions of dreams and things like that that she needs to relate to me um as her younger brother in part because she's you know my my guardian on the physical plane so uh, yeah because I, I, I was gonna know. say it sounds like a divine kind of thing you know yeah without oh, getting yes. too I'm religious fine. but in any it's religion okay. you, you know like no, 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 but I mean, for other people as well listening, like, I mean, like, not a one strict religion, sort of, I mean, oh, yeah. divine, like, in the greatest kind of yeah, yeah, understanding yeah. of that, that it sounds like, I mean, you know, there's a famous Emily Dickinson quote, um, I've got it actually here, if I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. Yeah. You know, no, something, Yeah. Yeah, it can feel like a weight too. Um, I don't know why. Yeah, for me, the idea that it's um, it's something at a slight remove, the poem, mm. like a language for it. Like I have a shard of it, but you don't get the whole thing until you sit down. There, there's a kind of deliberateness that's necessary to elocute it fully. So and, yeah, and I, I definitely, as a spiritual practice. Go ahead. Yeah. And was that, um, to find the discipline to follow that through, is that difficult? No. No. Well, again, it's, so it's just part of the way I was raised. You just don't, um, I don't know, you don't really play with stuff like that. Or you can play with it, I think, a little bit. That, that maybe is the levity that, that poets are allowed. But I mean, um, you don't waste it. That's kind of a big deal. You know, yeah. if you, have a, you think you have a message, at least, or something of some import to say, you, you should take it quite seriously. And I, I, think, I do think of it that way. I think of, a, of it as a blessing. Some of this, too, is that my parents worked very hard for decades you know in the post office 
and the fact that I get to write things on paper and I feed myself and my family that way is it's mind boggling to tell the truth. It, it, it's not, um, it's not normal. You know, it's still quite strange to me because I didn't grow up around professors. I didn't grow up around writers. The idea that you can feed yourself with ideas and not the way my father did was that he lifted a hundred pound bag of mail back and forth between a truck and a conveyor belt 10 hours a day for 40 years. I mean, that, that was what work was, you know, to me growing up, there were no poets in our atmosphere. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that's incredible that, that this is what I get the opportunity to do. And so I try to take it seriously enough to treat it like work. I love that. It's made me a bit emotional, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just to also um, really appreciate, you know, yeah. And I also, I don't know if you're, you must be familiar with Mary Oliver. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I was thinking before when you were saying, and she talks so much about paying attention and it mm-hmm. feels like that's what you're doing. Yeah. And then taking, I guess, that responsibility of having paid attention mm. to then do something with it. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a philosopher I've been reading a lot more this year, Bernard Stiegler. And um, in one of his interviews, he talks about a t- paying attention as a form of uh, taking care, right? That actually part of how we take care of one another is that we pay attention. And part of maybe why we need to be careful with how we use new forms of technology is that they assail our ability to pay attention. And that's also our ability to take care of one another. And so, yeah, I, I take that quite seriously. I try to pay attention to my own interior life. I try to make sure I'm not lying or develop a difficult habits of mind that'll be hard to shake later. Um, I think having a kid on the horizon does something in that vein for me too, where the idea of being a sort of literal direct representation of, of human <laughs> goodness or frailty or evil i mean psychologically i've had to try to work that out like you're a real example you know i mean so so much so that like my dad's on the cover of this book you know i'm a i'm a grown man and uh he's he's still my hero in so many ways in part because he was first you know and to me his failures were the failures of humanity and his successes were the successes of humanity this is what you know a man could do with his hands or his voice or his his mind his dreams and so I just want to take that quite seriously. I think being a professor has taught me that from a, another angle. Um, you know, I, I care about my students a great deal. And I realize that, you know, they've entrusted me um, with their minds, but also their parents have. And I think seeing them all sort of on the Zoom screen this term has, has really uh, made that hit home for me. You know, like these people are part of family units and their parents have entrusted me with their education. And that's, that's very serious. That, that's not something to take lightly. Um, and it's part of growing up, you know, and, um, what does James Baldwin say that love is a growing up, you know, so we have to grow up to love each other better. Love that too. And let's talk about Ode. Yeah, let's talk about it. Which I thank you so much. I'm going to, as soon as I can get the book here through my bookstore, I'm trying to support my independent bookstores. (laughs) Thank you. I've really, yeah, it's, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Um, so tell me about the journey of writing this. Mm, yeah, sure. I mean, so the first poems, the first ode, O-W-E-D, an ode, uh, I wrote at Cave Canem, which is a fellowship for Black writers uh, here in the U.S. And at Cave Canem, I'm not giving away too many secrets, uh, you have to write a new poem sort of every night before workshop the next day. 
And so sitting down, you know, the, the ode in this time in my life was my go-to. You know, if I felt really stuck, it was, okay, how do we celebrate something sort of in the vicinity? And my mind kept going to my older sister um, and thinking about all that my sister Latoya had taught me, um, most especially her teaching me how to fight. And so I realized I wanted to write a poem celebrating that, but I didn't know what the frame was initially until it came to me, which was uh, pedagogy. So I thought I'm gonna write this poem called Ode to Pedagogy, which is also about what is owed to my sister, right? What kind of debt I owe her. And that eventually just became a frame for the entire book. You know, I, I read that poem the next day. Um, and a number of the, the poems in the book come from that retreat. Mike Brown is a type of Christ. I also wrote it that that Kaveh Khanum retreat, you know, and um, both of those poems are, are tied together in the sense that they're thinking about violence, but they're also thinking about the kinds of um, meditative tenacity and forms of celebration that Black people have cultivated to deal with these various sorts of violence, right? So I think I knew I had a book after writing a couple of those odes um, and those other poems, Barber Songs, another one, that I thought, okay, well, th this actually might be the core of something. And uh, over the next two years or so, you know, I, I put the poems together. I sent them to my editor, Paul Slovak at Penguin. He said, I think this is really good. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll circle the wagons again and we'll get this done. Because uh, my first book with Penguin, The Sobbing School, I just won a contest. You know, there's no guarantee that your publisher will stick with you after you win something like the National Poetry Series. So uh, now they're on our third book. I'm really excited to, you know, be a Penguin poet and continue the tradition. Yeah, what a good tradition. I was looking at the back of all the Penguin poets. It's just an yes, amazing actually. tradition. <laughs> Very cool. Um, now, it's in three parts. Can you tell me a little bit about that structure? Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, well, of course, it's the classical sort of three-act play, but I also was just thinking about these different versions of one, the token character who sort of moves throughout the book, right? So he's someone that loves language, loves wordplay, plays the dozen. He's very interested in, in what language makes possible, but he also is having to move between elite spaces and these sort of historically denigrated, poor uh, uh, and working black spaces where he developed that love in the first place. So I wanted to give these sort of multiple angles on that character. And I also in each section wanted to give different visions of what I call reparation sort of in, in this book. So thinking about not just sort of uh, material payments, right, that are owed to black people, but really how we can create an of reparation. So I try to uh, sort of approach that a bit differently in each section, some by looking more at family, others and kinship relations that are not blood, and really in the third section also having these kind of abolitionist poems. So elegy for the police state, elegy for prison, uh, elegy for the modern school, this sort of thing. Oh, I think maybe let's go to a poem and then we'll talk yeah, a bit about it yeah. more. Which Oh, I'm so curious which one you're going to choose. <laughs> uh, all right, so I'll just start at the beginning. This is Token Sings the Blues. Oh, yeah, that's one of my favourites, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. All right. The first and last are probably two of my favourites, but go. Uh, I'm glad, I'm glad. <laughs> Same here. That's why I wanted to book in the book. Yeah, of course. Uh, Token Sings the Blues. You always are almost always only one in the room. Maybe two, three is a crowd, three is a gang, three is a company of thieves, three is, wow, there's so many of you, three will get you confused with people that look nothing like you, you get called Devin. Your name isn't Devin. You do your best not to ignore such casual erasure. You know silence will be received as affirmation, praise even, and you always affirmative. 
You affirmative action, action figure. You fantastic, first black friend. You first ballot, quota keeper. You almost cry when your history professor says, you know, in this country, the gold standard used to be people. Funny how no one comes right out and says things like you people anymore. It's all cold words like thug or diversity higher. You diversity all by yourself. You contain multitudes and are yet contained everywhere you go, confined. Like there is always someone watching you and isn't there. And isn't that the entire point of this flesh you inherited? This unrepentant stain, be twice as good, mama says, as if what they have is worth your panic, worth measuring your very life against, and you always remember to measure. Your hair, your volume, your tone over email, you perpetually sorry, you don't know why. You apologize to no one in particular, just for being around and in your body at the same time, you know your body is the real problem. You monster, you beast of burden, you beast and borden, you horse but human, you centaur, you map the stars and pull back your bow to shoot the moon and it's one good white eye. You are everything, your big sister says and on your best days above ground, you believe her. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I read that poem and I was in bed reading it and, um, and then I, I said to my husband, I was like, you have to hear this. And I, and even me reading it out loud just elevated. I mean, the poem just like came out of me, you know, and, and I'd read it and I'd heard your voice, even though I've never even heard your voice. And, and then me reading it myself. I mean, it was incredibly emotional. You know, when you speak it out, it was just quite an experience, actually. Wow. Yeah. How does it feel for you? Uh, good. You know, I mean, this is again, one of those poems too. Well, I don't know if we talked about this part actually, but I really started that poem when I was 17 years old. You know, uh, my drama teacher actually called me Devin. Um, and Devin was one of my closest friends at the time. He's a six foot four star of the basketball team. I looked nothing like Devin. And so it was one of these strange moments where it just occurred to me as a senior in high school, you know, I'd been in this school for four years. I'd won awards. People knew I was president of multiple, people knew who I was. And, uh, but it was nonetheless this clear moment where at least in this moment, she maybe just clocked like a black person is there, but not like an individual human being who I know and I've spent time with is there. And it was um, just a complicated moment, you know, cause it, it was just this kind of offhand moment of misrecognition. And it took me over 10 years to write the poem, right? To understand the kind of context um, in which that line might live a full life. Right, which was that much later, now that I had my PhD and things like this and was going on the job market for the first time, but nonetheless was being described sort of primarily through the lens of a diversity hire. It just seemed like a very strange thing to me. I mean, I'd already published The Sobbing School. I was graduating from a top program, having won all these fellowships and things like this. And yet, and still it seemed to me that the primary way I was read was as a way to diversify the faculty 
um, and not as someone who just had a unique sort of intellectual contribution uh, to bring to an institution. So uh, that was what brought me to the poem and uh, what helped me stay there, you know. Do you think, um, I mean, we're in, I don't like to say troubling times, but we are. Yeah. Um, you know, this is quite a year, quite a few years, really, especially, I think, looking at America. Um, do you think poetry mm-hmm. is one of those mediums that can not just bring light and truth, but do something else? Oh, for sure. I mean, poetry for me, it electrifies the language, right? Like whenever I feel the sort of power of literary criticism or certain forms of nonfiction prose falling slack, I always go back to the poems because to me, there's just something very true there about distilled human language, right? About something that needs to be communicated. I mean, you're talking about uh, sort of perilous times. In a moment of danger, you have to communicate effectively, right, and quickly. And I think poetry does that, right? It it takes sort of the raw, true core elements of human emotion and it distills the language down and it gives it to us as this great gift. I think poetry also insists on beauty because it exists in so short a space, right? And I think both of those are are sort of lacking right now at the most public level um, in American culture, right? We, We don't have an emphasis on clarity and we don't have an emphasis on beauty. Certainly not. Um, actually, I think what we see quite often is really a refusal of beauty, a refusal of deep study or reflection, a refusal of, um, of expertise and people who have spent years studying various topics and objects precisely because they're so beautiful or important. And so I think poetry can help us recover that. Imagine like politicians are only allowed to speak in poetry. <laughs> or at least like some facility with it. I mean, just mem- I mean, memorizing poetry does a lot, I think. Yes. I once did a, like a therapeutic workshop um, where you could only speak in gibberish. And then another one where you could only communicate in opera. Wow. Yes. That was incredible. It was incredible. It was incredible. So, yeah, I think you imagine, you know, I mean, because you're right, everything you've just said is that the shortness and the clarity and the distillation is just suddenly happens. I mean, I ask you that question knowing full well you're going to agree with me, but I wanted to hear you say it better. Okay. I can say no. These are not times for poems. What are you talking about? But, yeah, no, I think we need, we need the poems. You know, we need those. And we need the kind of ceremonies where poems are central because I think that's part of what I'm always trying to get at too when people ask me about my childhood I say you know part of growing up in church was that poetry the hymns were poetry the sermons were poetry poetry was everywhere and the recitation of poetry was central same as when I went to sort of all black uh, pre-k the school called the modern school and we sang the black national anthem every day which is a poem right a poem written by James Walton Johnson and his brother Rosamond Johnson and to me, that was, um, how to say it? It was a way of placing myself in a continuum of consciousness, right? That to re- recite a poem about Harriet Tubman was not just to learn about who she was and everything she had done for our people, but it was to sort of lose myself in, um, in this group, in this group of other four-year-olds, but also seemingly in sort of the, the grand sweep of history, right? That to recite this poem was to say, I'm part of a tradition that spans back hundreds of years. And right now, this recitation is reminding me of my place in that, right? So I'm not purposeless. I'm not meaningless. I have, my life has great meaning. Um, if not, then why would these people have fought and died for it long before 
you know, I was even a thought in my parents' mind. Do you see what I'm saying? And right. I, I think the recitation of poetry has that unique uh, capability sort of built into it, right? To remind us of where we come from, you know, which is the, the stars, you know? We come from the stars and the water and the, and the dirt. Um, and we come from the, the people that, that loved us, you know, whether they were our blood family or not. That we all only got here and survived this in part because someone somewhere loved us or thought of us. So poetry always brings me back to that space. family reunion for Tariq. The question quarantines. My cousin's usual talk of anime and first apartments and Kiana Thomas's flawless hips has long ceased, faded like ghost kisses into the tepid night. I try and fail at least four times to make this into a conversation about wonder, do my best to make the doubt sound pretty. But who did Jesus think he was? exemplar or experimentalist. I watched the chariot wheels spinning in his eyes turn over and over. This is the longest we have spoken in 10 years. The sword now so deep, I could not retrieve it without killing us both. All right, and another poem, uh, which is about hands, I guess, in its own way, like the end of that poem is. This is, you are so articulate with your hands. You are so articulate with your hands, she says, and it's the first time the word doesn't hurt. I respond by citing something age inappropriate from Aristotle, drawing mostly from his idea that hands are what make us human. Every gesture, the embodiment of our desire for invention or care. And I'm not sure about that last part, but it seemed like a polite response at the time and I'm not accustomed to not needing to fight. If my hands speak with conviction, then blame my stupid mouth for its lack of weaponry or sweetness. I clap when I'm angry because it's the best way to get the heat out. Pop says that my words are bigger than my mouth, but these hands can block a punch, hold a bookcase, feed a child, and when's the last time you saw a song do that? Thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Of course, of course. Now, I do have one strange question. Why, yeah, the, sure. an why the ampersand? Yeah, this is the second time I've gotten this question over the past month. Uh, well, okay, so the real answer is Araceli Scrimme has this poem called Ampersand. Um, and I, I believe it's in, it's in Kingdom Animalia. And I think since then, I've just thought about the beauty of it on the page. I love what it does. I love the space it takes up. I love that it reminds me of a kind of labyrinth. You know, you can imagine riding in a small bicycle along the path of an ampersand. So it's purely aesthetic for me. Okay, good. Well, I thought, I thought it must be aesthetic. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And obviously the publisher's fine with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Penguin digs it. You know, Paul, Paul lets me, he lets me rock. So that's good. Okay, great. Okay. Thank you so much. Is there anything you would say to aspiring poets? Uh, dream and read. Read everything. Read as much as you can. Read across genre. Watch beautiful films and listen to music that just takes you outside of yourself. 
you know, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's just what made all the difference for me as a poet is that I listened to everything um, and I read very widely. Um, and part of what that meant was that I never wanted for material. You know, if I really put my mind to it, I could write something. And that's because I had the voices of different traditions already in my mind working. Thank you so much. Honor and pleasure, Marianne. Have a great night. Thanks, you too. You've been listening to Wordsmith, the poetry podcast. Today's episode with Miriam in conversation with Joshua Bennett. Thanks for tuning in. A special thank you to Jessica Chapnick Khan for her song Precious and to Peter Brimage for the gorgeous logo.